grace and strength as you draw near to worship Him. Um, and speaking of a Mother's Day, uh, for, for those of you who are moms, uh, there are flowers uh, for you to pick out in a book as well, so feel free to grab one of those. Make sure to grab one uh, before you leave today. Um, also, uh, on behalf of those who were uh, responsible for organizing and assigning of tasks during the spring day, our spring workday yesterday, just want to say thank you for those of you who could make it out yesterday. Um, I think we were able to get a lot of things done, and so uh, which is very appreciative for the just the time and dedication that you took out of your Saturday morning to come and help us out in that way. Uh, so thank you very much. Um, also, uh, speaking of gratitude, I wanted to make sure I mentioned that uh, when you have a chance, uh, make sure to thank uh, Jay and, and Ron Gentini. Uh, they've been giving some uh, tedious effort in uh, securing for us a new swing set for, uh, for, to replace our old one, which should be uh, coming uh, later this week, I believe. So, um, so when you get a chance, just thank them for their efforts in doing that and securing that for us. Um, a couple of things I want to make sure I mentioned to you, calendar events. One, just want to remind you that next week we will have a cookout here at the church in the back parking lot. Uh, so please come to that. We'll also at the same time having a baby shower for Travis and Brooke Mendola. Also, there is a sign-up sheet in the back table in the back of the sanctuary. Uh, so if um, you haven't signed up to bring anything yet, uh, we hope that you will consider bringing something uh, for the cookout next week. Uh, and then lastly, on June 4th, which is a Sunday, we will have a congregational meeting immediately following the service. Uh, this would just be to review the finances uh, for you to let you know how things have been going uh, up until this point. It uh, should be pretty, uh, uh, pretty direct and pretty concise meeting, so I hope that you can uh, set that in your calendars and uh, prioritize coming to that, especially if you are a member here at the church. So with all that being said, uh, let us go before the Lord and worship him this morning. Uh, the Lord Jesus was risen from the grave on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday. And since then and throughout church history, uh, Christians have prioritized gathering together on the first day of the week to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so Paul says that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices to the glory and worship of God. And so let us do that just that this morning. Let us Go before the Lord, present ourselves as living sacrifices to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, let's stand. <clears throat> and with that said, the word, the word of God says that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children and of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Amen. Let's worship this morning, church.
His blood was the payment, His life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is Come. 
Father, I praise you this morning. Because we can trust, Lord, and we know that you are faithful. That even in this walk, in being a believer, a Christian, we know that you can and that you are beside us, holding us fast through the highs, through the lows. You are faithful. And today, Father, I pray that you may continue to lead us, lead our hearts, God, as we hear your word. Bring us, Father, to a place where we can understand what we're hearing. Open our ears. Bring us to repent, to repentance if, 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 if needed, Lord. You're worthy of our, of our worship, of our praise. We desire, Father, to give you the best. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy that you give us each and every day. May be glorified in our gathering this morning, God, for you're worthy of our praise. Continue, Lord, to work in us. Amen. Thank you, Father. Amen. Church, you may be seated at this time. We'll be uh, dismissing our children to their classrooms as well. Some of you today are perhaps in need of encouragement. Perhaps you've been praying for, for strength. Perhaps you've been praying for endurance. Perhaps you've been praying for some time for just wisdom from above. There's this, uh, this is hymn by John Newton uh, that I read this, this past week. Um, and I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's the Lord or not, but the first thoughts I had was uh, I have to share this with the church. So I want to read this to you. It's a little lengthy, so I hope you'll bear with me. Um, but try to just listen carefully, listen closely to the words, and hopefully it'll be an encouraging and sweet to your soul as it was when I had read it, and then we'll spend just a brief time in prayer before we get into the Word. The hymn goes like this, though troubles assail and dangers affright, though friends should all fail and foes all unite, yet one thing secures us, whatever betide, the scripture assures us, the Lord will provide. The birds without barn or storehouses are fed. From them, let us learn to trust for our bread. His saints, what is fitting, shall never be denied, so long as tis written, the Lord will provide. We may, like the ships, by tempest be tossed on perilous deeps, but cannot be lost. Though Satan enrages the wind and the tide, the promise engages, the Lord will provide. 
His call we obey like Abram of old, not knowing our way, but faith makes us bold. For though we are strangers, we have a good guide, and trust in all dangers the Lord will provide. When Satan appears to stop up our path and fills us with fears, we triumph by faith. He cannot take from us, though oft he has tried, this heart-cheering promise the Lord will provide. He tells us we're weak, our hope is in vain, the good that we seek we never shall obtain. When such suggestions our spirits have plied, this answers all questions the Lord will provide. No strength of our own or goodness we claim, yet since we have known the Savior's great name, in this our strong tower for safety we hide, the Lord is our power, the Lord will provide. When life sinks apace and death is in view, this word of his grace shall comfort us through. No fearing or doubting, when Christ is on our side, we hope to die shouting, the Lord will provide. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we come before you as children in need. There are many of us here who are in need of wisdom, who are in need of grace, who are in need of an increase of our faith, who are in need of strength, encouragement, who are in need of endurance and perseverance. And so we come before you, trusting that you will indeed provide. Lord, we pray that you would encourage the faint-hearted, that you would give strength to those who are weak, that you would rekindle a flame in the hearts of those who need it in this hour. We pray for those in our midst, Lord, in our church, who have been battling discouragement, and that you would renew their strength and cause them to soar on wings like eagles. Father, we pray, we ask, we plead, we beg, that as you are enthroned above the cherubim, receiving the praises due to your name by the heavenly hosts, that as you listen to the prayers of your children, of your precious saints that you have redeemed through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that you would rise and come to the occasion and answer and come through and refuge your precious people. Lord, we trust that you will graciously provide. Lord, we pray on this day, on this Mother's Day, we pray for mothers. Lord, we pray for those who have children in the home that they are raising and training up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. God, give them your grace and give them your wisdom. Give them great patience. 
Lord, we know that you will provide. Father, we pray. We pray for those who have, who have lost children. You are the God of all comfort. And we pray, God, that you would provide your comfort to your dear and precious saints, to your daughters. And Father, we pray for those who have children already outside of the home and yet are still pleading that their precious children would come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, provide the desire of their hearts. Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, give your grace, that you would help them to adorn themselves with the internal beauty that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ that furnishes them with patience and grace and strength, endurance, boldness, Father, we thank you for those who have been mother to us, whether blood or whether it's through just relationship, for their example, for their grace, for their patience. And Father, we pray that your face would continue to shine upon your precious daughters continue to equip them with all that they need. So we lift up these requests, these prayers to you, knowing that you hear us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's turn to, to God's Word. We are turning to Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. So if you do have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to turn there with me. The words will also be up on the screen. Uh, there are also Bibles in the seat in front of you, underneath as well. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we've been walking through the events surrounding the healing of the lame beggar at the temple. And last week, uh, you went through chapter, or chapter 4, verses 5 through 12. Uh, to which Daniel did an excellent job preaching that section last week. And I would encourage you to listen to that, and I apologize because I know that the sermon itself isn't up on audio format on the podcast, so that is my fault, so I apologize for that. That will be up soon, but I, when it is up, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it if you haven't. So we're picking it up right after the exchange between Peter and the council. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they, the council, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. 
But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Father, help us to turn our attention to your precious and sacred word. Lord, help us to see the example of Peter and John. Help us, by your Spirit, to not only desire to imitate their example, but to also, in action, follow their example, should we be ever placed in such a position. Lord, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our lives. Equip us with all that we need, even this very hour, to continue to give and surrender our lives to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The German reformer Martin Luther stood before the council of his day and he was asked to recant of his doctrine and his teaching. John Calvin, not long after Martin Luther, was kicked out of his church and run out of Geneva for preaching the Bible preaching the scriptures, Lady Jane Grey, moments before her execution at the hands of her cousin, who was known as Bloody Mary, was given a moment to save her own life if she would just affirm that justification, that precious doctrine of justification by faith alone, if she would just say that justification is by faith and works, to which she would not consent Jonathan Edwards was run out and kicked out of his own church after years of ministering and pastoring to his church for his biblical views on communion. With all these individuals, what do they have in common? Aside from the fact that they were Christians, one of the things that they had in common was that they were each placed in a compromising position, a position where they had to make a decision of whether or not they would compromise their biblical convictions and live comfortably with the rest of the world, or would they hold on to their convictions to their own peril? Courage is defined most succinctly by moral philosophers and theologians as the habits that enables a person to face difficulties well. And certainly, Luther, Calvin, Lady Jane Grey, Edwards, and many others like them in their lives, we see a courage worthy of imitating. And it is that courage that also leads to a God-inspired boldness. 
And courage and boldness is not ignorance of risks and consequences. In fact, courage and boldness sees the risks and the threats that are involved and still chooses to charge ahead. Peter and John knew exactly what they were doing. They healed this lame beggar at the temple, which led, led to sort of a platform for them to preach the gospel, which led to the salvation of many, which then led to their arrest and imprisonment. And there we see the first persecution of the church. But they knew the risks. Surely they knew the risks. They knew those who were in authority over the temple. They knew that their teachings were inconsistent with the teachings of those who oversaw the temple. And yet they charged ahead anyway. But even in the charging ahead and even in the passage that we just read moments earlier, there are several things we see. And one of the things that we see is something concerning this religious council. And what we see is that this is a stone-hearted council. Luke, as he narrates the passage for us, as he narrates the events of the first church in the book of Acts, he tells us here what's happening between Peter and John and the council. And it tells us several different things that the religious council did. And among many things... This religious consul says, Luke tells us that they had nothing to say. So Peter and John had just preached the gospel. They had just asked him, well, by what authority do you do these things? And they tell him plainly, by the authority of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. It is his, in, in his name that we preach this gospel. It is in his name that this man is healed. To which the council has nothing to say. Now take notice of the fact of what of, of the makeup of this council. Earlier in verse five, this council is made up of rulers, elders, scribes, with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, probably religious officers, and all who were of the high priestly family. So this was quite a crowd here in a conference with Peter and John. These are the religious authorities. These are the higher-ups and the higher, higher-ups and the higher, higher, higher-ups. These are the, the theologians of the day. And here they are talking with Peter and John, and they're left speechless. I mean, how in the world do you have nothing to say? This could have been an opportunity to engage in some theological conversations hey, where do you get this idea about Jesus? Can you confirm in the Scripture that this Jesus is actually the Messiah? Well, what about this passage? What about this other passage in the Scriptures? This would have been a prime opportunity to have some good conversations. Instead, you have nothing to say. And with having nothing to say, they excuse Peter and John, take them back to their prison, and then this large group of the council, they come together and they confer. They begin to ask themselves, well, what do we do? In other words, we have no idea what our options are here. We have no idea what, what, what do we do next. What are our actionable steps? Not only that, but Luke also tells us that they cannot deny. They cannot deny 
that this miracle had happened. This man is, is 40 years old. He's a grown adult. Anyone can ask him, hey, are you actually that lame beggar at the temple? Yes, I am he. I was born this way, and in a moment, Jesus healed me through these apostles. Not only that, but even says like all Jerusalem at this point had heard about the miracle. People at the temple who were there witnessed the miracle are also identifying that this is a man. There's no denying it. And so what do they conclude with? Let's warn them. They call them back. It says they charge them and they threaten them to stop teaching and speaking to the people in the name of Jesus. And then they just simply let him go. Because they had nothing else to do. They had no, had no idea what to do. 20th century Jewish historian Jake Klausner actually thinks that this was a terrible mistake on the part of the religious council. This historian writes, this was the first mistake which the Jewish leaders made with regard to this new sect. And this mistake was fatal. There was probably no need to arrest the Nazarenes, this calling attention to them and making them martyrs. But once arrested, they should not have been freed so quickly. The arrest and release increased the number of believers. For these events showed on the one hand that the new sect was a power which the authorities feared enough to persecute. And on the other hand, they proved that there was no danger in being a disciple of Jesus. He says it's a mistake. They should have never been arrested in the first place and showing that they were actually fearful of this new sect. And even in their being arrested, they should have figured something out instead of simply letting them go. Because otherwise, you're just showing that it's actually quite okay to be a disciple of Jesus. But in all these things, the council shows us what is the state of their heart. And what we see is that the reason why they could not, or that what the reason why they did not believe in Jesus is because they will not believe in Jesus. There is a fortress surrounding their minds, unable to open up the gates and engage at least in some kind of conversation. Hey, let's go to the scriptures and have a conversation here. They were not even willing to do that. Not only that, but there was a fortress surrounding their hearts. And even their hearts had a stony surface about it. So given the miracle, given what has happened, they refuse to believe. Right? Seeing is not always believing. Right? I've heard it said before, perhaps you sort of have heard it said before, like if, I, if Jesus was alive today here in the flesh and I saw him, I certainly would believe. But that is no guarantee. I mean, take for instance John chapter 6. Thousands of people saw Jesus, witnessed his miracle, were recipients of the miracle of Jesus when he fed them, all of them, using a few loaves of bread and some fish. And yet by the end of that event, thousands of them walked away from Jesus, leaving only the 12 disciples. Seeing is not always believing 
Christ, Lord, I would encourage you, if you have yet to believe in Jesus, do not wait for some kind of miracle. Do not wait for some kind of sign that Jesus is real, because that will not be a guarantee that you will actually believe on that day. But believe. Choose to believe. Believe today. Jesus makes himself most known through his word. And he is calling to you and telling you today to believe. There's something else that the religious council, something that they notice, which takes us secondly to a striking resemblance. They were silent, they conferred with one another, they had nothing to do, they charged them, they threatened the apostles, then they let them go. But there's one other thing, and that is that on looking and engaging with these apostles, they recognized a familiar resemblance. And they were astonished. They noticed that these two men had been with Jesus. It was immediately recognizable that, this, that these two individuals had been with Jesus. Someone should wake him up because we can hear his snoring. They recognized that he had been, that they had been with Jesus. There was something peculiar about them. When they saw that, and of course, they recognized this because they had seen Jesus themselves. They had engaged with Jesus. They had heard his teachings. They had tried to test Jesus, catch him in his words. So they knew exactly what Jesus was like. And so when they looked at Peter and John and heard them speak, they recognized Hey, these guys are like somebody we know. They're just like Jesus. In John 7.15, we see that other people had sort of a similar reaction to the religious council. John 7.15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, speaking about Jesus, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? It's the same kind of reaction to the apostles. They recognize that these were common men. They were uneducated. It's not that they were illiterate, but they were not as trained as they were. So they would probably ask him, well, who's your teacher? Who's your rabbi? Who's your master? Who were you taught by? Who were you trained under? But in these men, they could recognize that there had been some kind of learning. They understood. They knew their stuff. And that's because they had Jesus as their rabbi. They were under the education of their master, Jesus. They were under the tutelage of Jesus Christ. And in this way, it goes to show that they bear this resemblance. I mean, what is a Christian but a person, a man or woman who resembles Christ? A person who is a, a believer cannot help but resemble their precious Savior. Wherever they go, whatever they're doing, they is, there's this resemblance to Jesus Christ. Even if the world cannot immediately recognize it, when they recognize there's something different or peculiar about you and I, it is because we bear a striking resemblance to Jesus Christ. But there's one thing in particular that made these two men stand out. 
something that they saw in them that they also saw in Jesus, and that is their boldness. Boldness is saying what needs to be said, even at the cost of one's reputation, even at the cost of one's life. You'll probably never get to that latter part where it might even cost you your life. Certainly that is a reality for many believers in different parts of the world. But boldness is still saying what needs to be said at the cost of one's reputation. Boldness is a refusal to compromise one's own convictions and even to speak those convictions even in the threat of peril. It's one thing to hold your convictions, and you should hold your biblical convictions tightly. But it's a whole other thing to also speak those convictions as well, even when you are aware that they may not be well received. Boldness is to speak the truth even while bows and arrows are aimed in your direction. Boldness does not look for ways to offend person. That's what not boldness is. Boldness is not about offending someone personally or even intentionally. That's not its aim. But sometimes boldness cannot help but offend. But again, it's never its aim. Boldness is not always concerned with saying the hardest thing. You're not trying to figure out what is the hardest thing that I should say in this situation. It's not what boldness is all about. And boldness is not even always speaking with your emotions or letting your emotions do all the talking for you. That's not boldness. But boldness maintains sort of a composure, a collectedness. Boldness is always concerned with speaking the truth. It is not concerned with saying those things that people want to hear, but it's concerned with saying those things that people need to hear. And saying what needs to be said and this is the boldness that we see in Peter and John. And this is the kind of boldness that is available to us when we pray for it. And this is the kind of boldness that the world needs today from you and I. And when we are bold, we need to also be careful. Because when we are bold and we declare the truth, right? sometimes people will want to retaliate. But we must avoid or keep ourselves, prevent ourselves from wanting to retaliate in return. Christians, in a way, are sort of like lightning rods. Sort of just lightning rods that take in the lightning, absorb the lightning. Sometimes when speaking the truth and speaking it boldly and lovingly and even gently, sometimes people will take it offensively and want to re retaliate. And rather than perhaps engaging and wanting some kind of comfortable and, or conversation and trying to deliberate these things, sometimes people will want to shame and slander your character and call you names. And we must not retaliate in return when they aim and throw those lightning bolts of retaliation towards us. We must not redirect the lightning and throw it back because that only blunts the truth of what we're trying to communicate. It only weakens the message of what we're trying to get across. And it is in this way also that Christians resemble their precious Savior. 
It's like Elijah's mantle that he then transferred over to Elisha. When Elisha prayed for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, and so immediately when he received it, others recognized that this man has the spirit of Elijah. So in the same way, Christ has also transferred or given his people his mantle. And in this way, we resemble Christ. We're called to resemble Christ no matter where we are, no matter what we do. No matter what our conversations are, are you resembling Christ? Or are you resembling more of the world? And even in the gospel message that we declare, is there a resemblance to Jesus Christ? Even, again, as I said before, even if people do not immediately recognize that you have been with Jesus, people recognize a peculiarity, a strangeness, perhaps, to your words and your life. They may not know, but you, in fact, do know. It is because you are resembling Christ. As we continue to look at the response of Peter and John, we see, thirdly, the fruit of obedience. Here we are again, these religious rulers, these leaders, these are ones who are in high authority. These are the ones who are in charge of the temple. And we want them to have that kind of authority. Right? Because if some person comes into the temple and teaching about Satan being the god of all gods or that the Roman gods are the god of all gods, right? you want the religious authorities to kick that the wacko out. But it's not a problem with their authority. It's the problem with the exercise of their authority. How they apply their authority. They charge and they threaten the apostles to stop speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. And what is their response? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In other words, you try to make sense of how it is right for us to listen to you rather than to God. You try to make peace with it, with God on your own terms, whatever that looks like. You do whatever is right by your own conscience, but we, in turn, have to abide by our own conscience, and we have to do what is right, and we have to do what God commands us to do. Just like Martin Luther standing before the own Catholic religious council of his day, who commanded him, even, even as he stood before the great leaders of his day, asking him, command, demanding him to recant of his beliefs, recant, Luther, of your teachings, recant of the 95 theses that you nailed to the castle doors of Wittenberg, recant of these things. And what was Luther's response? My conscience is captive to the word of God. And to go against the word is neither right or safe to do so. So long before Luther had his sort of confrontation with the religious leaders of his day, Peter and John had it. And their response is, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And it's not that as Christians we're trying to be rebellious to all authority. It's that we are trying to maintain an accurate 
hierarchy of authority, just like Peter and John did, that ultimately our authority comes from God. And anyone who would challenge us or demand us to do something that is contrary to what God commands us to do, we say our conscience is bound by the word of God. We must obey God rather than men. Even in the threat of opposition, even in the threat and peril of one's life, obedience shines brightest when darkness threatens to extinguish it. And it's in these moments when there is peril, when there is a threat of losing one's job or one's reputation, of having one's name slandered, and Christ's saints continue to charge ahead is when they most resemble their precious Savior. First Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Right, to go against God and His Word is a terrible thing to do. Peter and John stay the course, they charge ahead. We must obey God rather than men. What they see, what we see here. Fourthly, is the aroma of boldness. They give off this aroma that comes from obeying the Scriptures and obeying their precious Savior. They're duty-bound to continue to preach the Gospel, just as Paul also said in Romans 1.14. He says there, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also. And where does this sense of obligation come from? And I think in part it comes from earlier in that letter, this introduction, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, where it begins by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Paul says here that this gospel is the gospel of God. This is God's gospel. And it is through this gospel that Jesus set him apart to be an apostle, to go out into the world to bring about the obedience of faith to the proclamation of this gospel. And it's all for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. That is why he is under obligation. There is this great necessity in his life to continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because there is no other alternative. What other message do we have by which men can be saved? What other thing can we propose to men and women in the world for their salvation, eternal destinies hang in the balance. 
And we have this message to declare that will determine where people will end up after this life. And so there is this great necessity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because there is no other way that men can be saved. If there was, then God would have made it clear and we would be going about it in two different ways. To proclaim this salvation in Jesus Christ. But Jesus had made it that there is only one way. And that is through him, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it is of absolute necessity that Peter and John preached the gospel. It is of absolute necessity that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners because there was no other way, at least that we know of, by which men can be saved. We were under the judgment and the wrath of God because of our sins, and Jesus Christ came into the world to die on the cross for our sins and was raised again from the dead so that through our faith we might have eternal life with God and with Christ. Love certainly compelled Jesus to come into the world and die for his people, but it was also of absolute necessity. This was necessary in order to accomplish our salvation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, the second half of that section, that passage, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In other words, he says, let my life be accursed if I don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians bear the aroma of boldness because they continue to preach the gospel because, and they do so because there is no other way for man to be saved. The world, the great authorities of the world and its elites will always seek to prevent the spread of messages that it does not value. The question will always be, will Christians compromise their truth for the sake of living comfortably in a world full of lies? And the answer always has to be absolutely not. Otherwise, for Christians to remain silent only gives great aid to the devil. And it's what the religious authorities were doing. They were aligning themselves with the devil and intending to warn and silence Peter and John from continuing to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Boldness in Christians is what the world hates most, and yet it is the one thing that can jackhammer through the stony hearts of men and bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. Only the gospel has that kind of power. If men should fortress their own lives, their own hearts, and their minds through unbelief, only the gospel can barge through those iron gates and call men to salvation in Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's not always, it's not always that dramatic. Sometimes the preaching of the gospel is a slow, gradual process. Sometimes it's more like taking a chisel and a hammer and slowly chiseling at that stony surface over and over again. But only the gospel has the power to chip away slowly at that rock-hard surface. 
And it's difficult. Right? I understand the tension that there is in sharing the gospel with others. There's a timidness, there's a shyness, there's a reservedness. Sometimes there is a fear in sharing the gospel with others. It's a fear of perhaps losing relationship with those that you're close to or with friends. There's a fear of losing other things as well, things that are perhaps are important to you, things that are precious to you. But let me conclude with a motivation to boldness, or a, a motivation of boldness. And that, I think there's several things that we can look to in the scriptures to motivate us to continue our Christian walk with boldness and proclaiming the gospel with boldness. But one thing I want to put before you to encourage you with is to consider the great love of Christ. Consider what Christ Jesus, the lengths that he had gone through for your sake and mine that he would endure hostility from sinners, that he would be examined, scrutinized by the religious teachers of his day, that he would be betrayed by one of his own dear friends, that he would then be handed over to sinners, be arrested, falsely tried and charged, crucified to a cross, killed on that cross. For your sake and mine, Would we consider the lengths that Jesus took to accomplish our salvation, willing to endure the great hostility of the world, charging ahead with boldness? All for your sake and mine, how can we not also continue to charge ahead with boldness? 2 Corinthians 5.14 says there, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he, that is Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Not only is this a great motivation to continue to share the gospel with the world, but this is also a great motivation for living. It says that the love of Christ controls us. And where does this, this controlling love come from? It comes from the gospel. He says it there concisely, succinctly, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died for his people and was raised again so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but instead live for him who died and was raised from the dead. There's a great motivation there to continue to live because of the love of Christ controls us, to, to go about our day and fulfill our tasks, to raise our children to take care of our homes, to continue to work and do it well, to engage with those in the community, to serve one another, to come together on Sunday mornings with God's people. Because there's this desire in us to live every moment for Christ. Because this great love of Jesus Christ that he has so vividly shown us on the cross controls us. Let your life be controlled by the great love of Christ. Let it be enveloped. Jesus, moments before he departs, he says to his disciples that in the world you have tribulation, 
But he also says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Christians, by faith in Jesus Christ, are united to Jesus Christ. And this is intended to be an encouragement for when Jesus says, to take heart, I have overcome the world, it also means that you have overcome the world. That no matter what trials you face, no matter what challenges present themselves, no matter what opposition you face in this world on account of a being a believer and sharing the gospel, take heart in Christ Jesus. You have overcome the world. Jesus Christ has guaranteed that at the end of the day, you're going to be victorious because Christ Jesus is victorious over sin and death. Sometimes, Boldness is sharing the gospel. Sometimes boldness is just telling someone, I am a Christian. That's no small statement, by the way. To say to someone that you are a Christian says a great deal, even though they may not understand the full picture of it. To say that you are a Christian means that you've been saved by the blood of Christ means that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. It means that you have given your life to follow Jesus. That he is your ultimate authority. So even if you come to a moment and talking with someone and all you can sort of get out is that I am a Christian, don't be discouraged by thinking, oh, I wish I could have said more. That's not a small statement. It isn't. That one statement is itself an act of boldness. Jesus has overcome the world. And because we are in him, we too have overcome the world. So let us charge ahead with the boldness that comes from the Spirit, controlled by the great love of Christ. By way of response, we're going to take communion together this morning. If you haven't done so yet, there are these small cups in the back table. You are free at this time to grab one of those. Christ Jesus instituted the supper, the taking of this meal, right before he was handed over to sinners to be crucified on the cross. It's quite striking that he left this to the very end. It's one of the last things that he left with his disciples before he was crucified. This is intended to mean something. As Christians, we do not believe that, the, that this, this, uh, this cup and this bread actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But Jesus instituted this supper for his people as a way to remind them that whenever we take this meal together, that Christ's presence is with us. So you guys who take this believe that the presence of Christ is here with us to bless us even as we take this meal. If you don't believe, then there's no point in taking it. But wholeheartedly believe that the presence of Christ is with us even as we speak using this meal as a means of grace for your life and mine. This meal was given 
by the Lord Jesus and commanded to be taken together in the church, given to all those who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who call Jesus their Savior, whose life is characterized by repentance, turning away from sin, and turning to Christ Jesus daily. Not a perfect righteousness that is impossible in this life. God has guaranteed in Christ that one day we will be perfected, but not here and now. But we're called to a life of obedience unto the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the first acts of obedience is is receiving baptism. So if you are here this morning, regardless of whether or not you're a member at the church, if you have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have uh, trusted in Christ Jesus as your Savior, your life is characterized by repentance, and you have submitted to baptism, then you are invited to take this meal as a brother or sister in Christ. But if you have yet to take or believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the Scriptures warns that anyone who does take this meal in an unworthy manner, that is apart from faith, drinks a particular judgment on themselves, and that, uh, that they put themselves even at a risk of receiving even present consequences. So if you have yet to believe in Jesus, we ask that you not take this meal with us. And this is not a form of judgment. No one is is criticizing you. But we we would call you to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance today. And it can change today by believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. What we'll do is we will take a moment to pause and reflect, and then we will take the bread and cup and conclude with a prayer and one last song. So let us just pause for a moment, reflect, confess our sins before the Lord, and also trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and be thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to take the bread and I want to do it in the same manner that we've been doing so in the past few instances that we've taken communion together. So I will declare to you that this is the body of Christ bruised for you and in turn you will say the body of Christ bruised for me. So let us take this, brothers and sisters, the body of Christ bruised for you. The body of Christ bruised for me. In the same way, we'll take the cup. We will say, and we will believe also that the body or the blood of Jesus Christ shed for me. So, brothers and sisters, this is not physically, but represents the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. So, let us affirm together the blood 
of Jesus Christ shed for me. Father in heaven, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no other God like you. There is no other God besides you. It is to you that we give our lives. It is to you that we surrender all things. For you have given everything for us, and that is giving the giving of your own Son to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, help us to continue to look to the gospel of Jesus Christ and there find the strength and the comfort that we need. And also, help us to find there the boldness that we need to continue to live our Christian lives and to declare this gospel of salvation. Lord, grant your children boldness. Help us, as the Apostle Paul said, that he was under obligation to preach the gospel and was also eager to preach the gospel. Well, there's a, there's a, a duty, but also an eagerness in preaching the gospel in the life of Paul. Lord, we desire to to imitate that. Give us that, we pray. Give us this eagerness to preach this gospel of salvation. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for how we have received the gospel. For those in our lives who declared it boldly so that we might be saved. Help us to be faithful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand and worship once again. In response to today's message. Amen.
this morning that that you Lord may bring out in us a necessity as we heard today Lord to to be bold in preaching the gospel and proclaiming your truth Father may we be obedient God to our call in preaching the gospel and Lord I pray that we may be reminded as well of of the boldness of Christ Jesus our Lord and, and his obedience to you Lord to you Father and and for his death Lord and for his people and why did he do these things because because of his love for us, God. And so, may we be reminded of that, Lord, and may we take heart and boldly, boldly stand firm in the works of the gospel. May our confidence be found in Christ alone. 
lead your people, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Amen. Church, God bless you. You're dismissed. Amen.